Well, our church's birthday is, uh, is always a, a very appropriate time to kind of remind ourselves who, who we are as a church, who we are striving to be uh, as a church, who God calls us to be. And, and so in that aim, we're going to kind of step out just this week out of the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at just one single verse today uh, from the book of Micah. Micah 6, 8. Uh, Micah is one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament, just right after the book of Jonah uh, is where you'll find Micah. Uh, now, in talking about, about who we are, who we are called to be as a church, uh, like much of the Christian life this side of glory, there is an already and not yet aspect to it, right? There's, there's a real sense in which we already are a gospel-centered community on mission. That, that God saves us and, and we are rooted in the gospel. We're saved by faith in the, in the good news of, of Jesus, right? Faith in Christ saves us. Uh, we are, we're drawn in together. Uh, God saves us not as isolated individuals, but he saves us into a family and uh, local expressions of that family and local churches. And he equips us and calls us and commissions us to live on mission, right? There's a reality that we are already this side of glory, a gospel-centered community on mission. But there's also a reality that we have not yet fully arrived in that. We have much growth uh, to, 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 to strive for and to, to see happen in our lives as we work towards living out that reality uh, of who we are. And so we're, it's something that we're striving after. It's something that we're still growing in. And Micah 6.8 gives us a, a beautiful picture of, of who we are to be, of who we are to strive to be as God's church. It gives us a picture of a godly life, a picture of a gospel-centered life, and it points us ultimately to a, to a picture of what it might look like for us to be a whole church gripped by the whole gospel. That's what we're going to see as we look at this uh, verse, uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You might you turn there in your Bibles and, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Micah 6, 8. Hear the word of the Lord. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, so grateful for your grace to us, uh, your sustaining grace that that we're standing here, that we're gathered here. Uh, eight years after the start of this church, you are, you're still at work. Uh, you're still uh, enabling and allowing us to be a part of the work that you've called us to here. We are, we're so grateful for that. Uh, Jesus, we are, we're thankful for the ways that you have worked in each of our lives to draw us to yourself, to draw us together, to uh, call us as your people to live for you in every way. And we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would equip us, that you would empower us to be a whole church equipped by the whole gospel, to be your people who, who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. We see here a, a picture of a, a godly life, right? Uh, this verse is, is often quoted uh, as giving a summary of, of what a godly life looks like, and, and rightly so. This is a picture of a godly life. It's a picture of a, a beautiful life. This is a, the life that we are all called to as God's people. If you are, you are in Christ, this is the life that you are called to. 
And, and just a little bit of context, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the background of Micah, but uh, God is, at this point in, in this book, he's bringing an indictment upon his people and showing how they have gotten caught up in, in thinking that the godly life is all about external things. It's all about the right offerings and the, the right sacrifices and, and what kind of the motions that they're going through in that. What, what we might put in terms of today in our context of, of kind of evaluating our standing with God based upon our, our church attendance and how many consecutive days we've been in the word and prayer uh, and how much we give or how much we serve, right? External things. In other words, as God's people, we are often, we often wrongly get the perspective of the godly life being defined by what we do. But in Micah 6, 8, the, the Lord speaks through the prophet here to say that we've got it all wrong. God is, is not focused on our religious performance. He's not focused on that. He wants hearts. He wants your heart. He wants lives that are surrendered to him, that are being shaped by his love and grace. And we are to live, uh, you, know, you know, those lives, right? They will do things. Like, absolutely, they'll, they'll do things. There are actions that follow that sort of life. But, but we're not doing things to earn or to keep God's favor or approval or acceptance, but we're doing them because we already have it because we're being shaped by it and empowered by it and equipped by it. We are to live godly lives that have been shaped by God's love and grace that he has freely given to us. That's what we see in Micah 6.8. And this is the godly life that we're called to, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Or if you're looking at the New International Version, it says to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse in the message where he says, but, but he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor be compassionate and loyal in your love and don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. This is how God sums up the godly life here in Micah 6.8. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Let's walk through each of those things here real quickly. Do justice, do justice. What does that mean? Well, as, as I think Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, right, he nails it right on the head, right? Doing what is fair and just to your neighbor. That's doing justice. Doing what is fair and just to your neighbor, which begs the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, of course, when asked that question, told a parable, told a story about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And along the way, he falls into the hands of robbers. He's intercepted by them. He's stripped of his clothes. He's robbed. He's beaten. He's left half dead on the side of the road. And a priest then happens to walk by this man lying half dead in the road. And he passes by on the other side. And then a Levite comes and he does the same thing, just passes by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, a hated Samaritan, the mortal enemy of the Jews, a Samaritan 
happens by. And he sees the man and he has compassion. He stops. He cares for the man. He binds up his wounds. He takes him to an inn. He pays for his care. He attends to him himself and provides care. Right? Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And the point that Jesus is making is that your neighbor is anyone and everyone that you come across. Anyone and everyone that you know about who is in need, who you interact with, who you see before you. Anyone and everyone you see in this world. A godly life seeks to do what is fair and just to your neighbor, all of your neighbors. Not just the neighbors that look like you, not just the neighbors that think like you, not just the neighbors that vote like you, but all of your neighbors. Justice means showing love to others. It means living in right relationship with others. And biblically, as you walk through the Bible and you see God's heart for justice, he's a God of justice, by the way. You, you see, again, it specifically refers to loving those who are oppressed and marginalized. That God has a heart for the oppressed and the marginalized, and he desires for his people to share his heart. God cares about justice. It's, it's not peripheral. It is central to living a godly life doing justice. Do justice and love kindness, or the NIV, love mercy. A godly life begins because God has himself shown us kindness and mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how our godly life begins, by the kindness and mercy of our Lord. And as a recipient of mercy, you are to extend mercy to anyone you see who is in need of mercy. That's one sense of what is meant by loving kindness and loving mercy. Another sense means that you love the kindness and mercy that you have been shown. More importantly, you love the one who is the source, who is the one who has extended kindness and mercy to you. You love him. You link your life up to him. You are covenantly connected in, in, in a covenant loyalty and commitment to the Lord who has shown you kindness and mercy. Wed together, you belong to him. He's your God, you are his people, right? But, but the thing is, right, in, in this sense, it's kind of referring to this covenant loyalty. That's what it means to, to love kindness here. It's another sense of it. But the thing is, is that God does not simply show kindness and mercy to isolated individuals, who, who live autonomously from one another. But rather, he extends kindness and mercy to a collective people. Or you see this from the beginning of, of Genesis to the end of Revelation, that God's heart is, his desire is to have a people for himself. Not a person, but people. A people for himself. He will be their God. They will be his people. You see this again in 1 Peter 2.10 where it says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
God extends his kindness and his mercy to us to make us his people, a collective people, his church universal that we live out in local expressions of local churches, right? This is a hard thing for us because we live in such an individualistic society here in the Western world where we, we think of everything through the lens of, of me, myself, and I. And we, we, we quickly just kind of adopt that to our way of thinking of church. Like, I am free to pick and choose what I want to be a part of, what I don't want to be a part of, what that looks like, what it doesn't look like. But the scripture knows no understanding of that. Now, it's a, a belonging to one another, a covenant loyalty to God and to the people of God, that what we do impacts the body of Christ. We are part of the body. We're not isolated individuals. We are all connected together, bound together by Christ, who is our head. We belong to one another. That's what this means. God puts us together as his people to care for one another to belong to one another, to build one another up and spur one another on as we read moments ago. We are to live in covenant loyalty with one another in the church, showing kindness and mercy to each other. And as the church, we are to collectively show kindness and mercy to people outside the body of Christ, in our city, in our community, who are in need of mercy care for their needs and to point them to the one who has shown us mercy. That's what it means to love kindness. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Walking humbly is very clearly the opposite of walking proudly. It is not living for yourself. It is not living to do things your way. It's living wisely. That's what it means to walk humbly, is to live wisely. And wise living submits itself to God's will, not to your own will, right? It submits itself to God's will, to God's way of doing things. It's living for God and not for self. It's, it's living with a focus on God and not focusing on yourself. It's saying his glory, not mine. His glory not mine. It's living in utter dependence upon God for every breath, for our every moment, for everything, giving thanks, giving praise, seeking to live for his glory. That's walking humbly with your God. And that is so significant because the inescapable reality that we are faced with as we read Micah 6.8 is that you and I, we cannot do justice we cannot love kindness and we cannot walk humbly with our God by our own strength and effort. By our own efforts, we will absolutely fail to do justice. We will fail. We, we turn on the TV, right? We see that we fail to do justice. We fail to love kindness. We fail to walk humbly with our God. On your own, you'll fail to live up to this godly life. But you see, that's not really the point of this snapshot. It's not meant to give you a goal to strive after on your own strength, by your own effort. Rather, it's meant to point you to Jesus, to point you to Christ and to show you that this is also a picture of a gospel-centered life. The point of this, this verse is not do, do better, try harder, right? That's not the point at all of these things. Do better, try harder. 
We're meant to look at this verse and we are, as we are the rest of the Bible, all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, what we see is that this is a picture of Jesus. Micah 6.8 is a, is a picture of Christ because only Jesus lived this godly life perfectly. Only Jesus perfectly does justice. Perfectly doing what is fair and just for his neighbor every time. Only Jesus perfectly loves kindness, showing mercy to those who are in need of mercy and living in perfect covenant loyalty with God and others. Only Jesus perfectly walks humbly with God, submitting himself to the Father's will, doing perfectly all the Father commands, even willingly going to the cross in your place for your sins. He submits himself perfectly. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus did all of this perfectly in your place for you. He did this for you. Micah 6.8 gives us a picture of Jesus and it reminds us that Jesus did all of this in our place for us. He, Jesus, is the eternal son of God who took on flesh and lived the life we never could doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God perfectly in our place, and that he willingly exchanged that perfect life at the cross for our sin, for our failure to do justice, our failure to love kindness, our failure to walk humbly with our God. He took our failure upon himself and went there and died the death we deserved for that sin and failure. Jesus died and he was raised victorious over sin and death that all who would trust in him, as it says in Romans 10, that anyone who would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that he is Lord, that Jesus lived and died and was raised for you in your place to accomplish your rescue. Anyone who would confess with their mouth believe in their heart and trust in Christ, they would be saved. That as you trust in Christ, his perfect record of righteousness is credited to your account. That his doing justice, his loving kindness, his walking humbly with God is now yours by faith in him. And that by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus and his finished work, your life is united with Christ. You are in him and he is in you. You are indwelled by Christ through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He dwells in you. And by the Spirit, you are being empowered and equipped more and more to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. As you press into Christ by faith, he changes you, he transforms you. As you rejoice day by day in his mercy and kindness and grace that he has shown you that you do not deserve, your hearts are transformed and made to be more and more like his. He equips you to start living more and more like him. Micah 6.8 is a picture of a gospel-centered life, a life that is centered on Jesus, on his love and grace for us a life that is empowered by his finished work and his spirit living in us. 
But again, we must remember, Jesus doesn't do this for isolated individuals. He shows us mercy to make us a people, to make us his people, which means we're also seeing here a picture of a whole church gripped by the whole gospel. Now, what do I mean when I say the whole gospel? Like, like what's the, what, are we, what are we trying to say about the gospel there? Like, right, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. We, we got that down. Hopefully, you know the gospel, right? But, but there's a reality that, that we are all prone, if we're not careful, to settle for a truncated, reductionistic view of the gospel, something lesser than the fullness of the whole true gospel. We have used a language here uh, from the very beginning that there's one gospel with three aspects, right? The aspect of kingdom, cross, and grace, right? One gospel, three aspects. The gospel of the kingdom, the aspect of the kingdom is life with God under the rule of God. That's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the cross is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which we are saved. It accomplishes our salvation, rescues us from God's just wrath against our sin, and incorporates us into his people. That's the gospel of the cross. And the gospel of grace is that God forgives us, accepts us, adopts us, makes us heirs of his kingdom. Not because we have done something to earn it or deserve it, but freely as a gift of grace. All of salvation is God's doing from start to finish. God the Father plans our rescue, Ephesians 1, in eternity past. The Son, Jesus Christ, comes to accomplish everything that is required for our salvation. And even the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts to believe it, to receive it, to embrace it in faith. It's all grace. That's the gospel of grace. But the reality is, is in, in a variety of ways, we are, we are prone to reduce that whole gospel, to, to focus on one aspect of the gospel divorced from the others. In the last couple hundred years of, of church history, we've seen this in a lot of the mainline denominations, that there's been a focus on the gospel of the kingdom divorced from the gospel of the cross. That's a gospel of only social justice, only social justice, but we're not going to mention Jesus. He just divides people and gets in the way. So we will feed the hungry. We will care for the poor, but we will not tell them about Christ. It's the gospel of the kingdom divorced from the gospel of the cross. That's not a whole gospel. But friends, if I'm being honest with you, in our evangelical world, we likewise truncate the gospel. And we focus on the gospel of the cross, divorced from the gospel of the kingdom many times where the gospel is only about you having a personal relationship with Jesus. It's only about you, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, being made right with him. But who cares about what's going on in the world around us? It's all going to burn anyway. Who cares about justice? Who cares about those in need? It's just about you and Jesus being right. That's a truncated gospel. It's a reductionistic gospel. That is not the whole gospel, you know? And, and Micah 6.8 is, is just another passage that shows us that we need a whole gospel. That the gospel's not just justice divorced from the cross of Christ, but 
But the answer to that isn't, you know, have nothing to do with justice and mercy and just say, hey, just preach the gospel. A whole gospel is concerned with all of it. All of it, because that's what it is. It's a whole gospel. God's heart is for all of it. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with your God. 19th century British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, which by the way, if you read through Spurgeon's sermons, like, I dare you, find one where he does not preach the cross of Christ. Find one where he does not proclaim Jesus. But he also says this, any church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to exist. Read the Bible, friends. God cares about justice. He cares about those who are suffering from injustice. He cares about the oppressed and the marginalized. He is a God of justice, he reveals himself to be, and a God of mercy. And clearly, he cares about our personal relationship with him. He sends his very son to come and restore and reconcile us to him in that right relationship to deal with our sin and secure our rescue, making us members of his family, living in restored relationship with God. It's not either or with God. It's both and. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's a whole gospel, both and. And God's design and desire is for a whole church to be gripped by the whole gospel, not isolated individuals, but whole communities. Imagine the impact, not of single people, solo individuals here and there, but of whole churches living out the whole gospel together. Their lives shaped by it together. Imagine the impact we could have as one of those churches in the city of Bloomington, in Monroe County, the impact that the Lord could have through us if we were a whole church gripped by the whole gospel. As the gospel would move us and equip us and empower us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Empower us and equip us to do justice, doing what is fair and just for all of our neighbors, which means that we must speak out and denounce all sorts of injustices like racism in its individual and systemic forms, like abortion, like sex trafficking, It means that we would show mercy to those who are in need, caring for the poor and the marginalized. As we pool our resources together and we we use the gifts that the Holy Spirit blesses us with as God's people, we use those gifts together to care for the needs of those around us, to minister to them and to point them to the one who showed us mercy, Jesus Christ. Imagine the impact as the gospel moves us, equips us, and empowers us to love kindness living in covenant loyalty with God and with one another. You know, our life in community together is part of God's design for proclaiming the the gospel to others. It's part of God's design for communicating the gospel to the world is the community of God living the gospel out. The late missiologist Leslie Newbigin wrote this. He said, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? 
I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. His point is that the church and the way that we love and serve and care and forgive one another proclaims the gospel, displays, gives a visible display of the gospel to the world around us in such a way that it it grabs the attention of people around us. Like, how can those people forgive one another when they betray one another? You see, cancel culture has no place in the church because when does Jesus cancel his bride? She's unfaithful to him constantly. You're unfaithful to him constantly. When does he call it quits with you? When does he say, no, that's it. I'm done. He doesn't. Perfect covenant loyalty. He shows his bride. Unwavering commitment. Unending grace. Friends, if you're unable to forgive someone that you're in conflict with, it's because you haven't been looking at the cross long enough. And you don't understand your own sin and what you have been given in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Reconciliation always requires repentance on both sides. But anyone in Christ should be able to forgive anyone else because of the forgiveness you've been shown by Jesus for your sin. And it's in the way that we would love and care and serve one another and forgive one another that we proclaim to the world around us the power of the gospel, the credibility of the gospel. And people see it and they take note. What is going on with those people? How they put up with each other. But not just put up with each other, but they love each other. It's a powerful, powerful testimony that we can have together. Not only are we to passively share the gospel in our life together in the church, but we are to actively, intentionally share the message of Christ as we do justice and love kindness. We are to proclaim Jesus, open our mouths, and give a verbal witness of the source of the grace and the mercy and the hope that we have. We are to intentionally live to share the good news of Jesus with others. A missional life is what we're called to as God's people, that others might come to know his love and grace too that they might know his kindness and mercy and join in with us. I saw this quote from Russell Moore uh, that someone shared on my social media feed this week. It's a long quote, but I'm gonna share it. I think it's important for us to hear. He says, Jesus will build his church with us or without us. But if we are going to be faithful to him, we must share his mission. The hope for the future is churches filled with people who never thought they fit the image of Christian. The next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the original first Augustine of Hippo was. But the Spirit of God can turn all of that around and seems to delight to do so 
We must labor to preserve something ancient, something ever new, not just for us and not just for our children, but for the future, for our future brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom hate us right now. Friends, you understand that when you came to faith in Christ, that was a miracle. You are, we are all testimonies that God works miracles, that God can save anyone. Our lives are testimonies to that fact. And who are we to think anyone is beyond the reach of his grace? From our perspective, no one is. And so we labor in that direction to share Christ, even with the people who hate us right now. Trusting that God is able, Jesus is able to soften hearts and bring people to faith. Living as a whole church, gripped by a whole gospel, results in living a full life, a joy-filled, hope-filled, abundant life where we rest in and are empowered by the grace of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture, but you know what? It's an even better reality if we will step into it by faith in Christ. Will you join together? Will you join together with your brothers and sisters in this church? in this time, in this place, to be God's people together, empowered by the Spirit, equipped by the Spirit to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Will you lay down living for your way and embrace his way instead? That's the invitation he gives us. Let's press into Jesus and let it, let's let him move us to live as a whole church gripped by a whole gospel for his glory and for the joy of many others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are, are so thankful for the mercy and kindness that you have extended to us through your son. Jesus, thank you for living and dying and rising in our place. Thank you for enabling us to be your people. May you equip and empower us by your spirit to live as your people. May you use us for your purpose of reaching others for your glory. May we more and more be a church that does what is fair and just for all of our neighbors. May we denounce injustice and stand with you for the oppressed and the marginalized. May we more and more be a church that loves kindness and from the mercy that you have shown us, extend mercy to others in need. May we love one another fiercely and graciously as you love us. And may you enable us to walk humbly with you, not living for ourselves, but living for your glory. Have your way with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.